You're listening in on an animated discussion about Batman the Animated Series with two experts in their fields. I'm Joshua Unruh, Superhero Scholar. And I'm Caleb Masters, your friendly neighborhood film critic extraordinaire from thecinematropolis.com. And today's topic is arguably one of the best big screen adaptations of the adventures of the Cape Crusader, Batman, Mask of the Phantasm. And yes, it does turn 25 years old this year. Just keep feeling older. I saw this in the theaters. Anyway. Don't ask how old I was when this movie got to the theaters. You don't want Negative to know. Negative two. So we're joined by a couple of special guests tonight, Joshua. Please welcome our first special guest. He's a friend of yours, so please tell us about him. Bobby Griffith uh, is our special guest tonight. He, me and him are Hi. friends from way back. Hey, Bobby. How's it going? You are one of the both most intellectual people I know and also well-read Batman people I know around the globe, also an Oklahoma historian. And I was like, whenever we did the show, I was like, I've been trying to do something with Batman related with you and Joshua in the same conversation for years. So I was like, we've got to get, get Bobby. So, Bobby, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, we have a few other special guests on the show tonight, because for those of you listening at home, we are at the historic Tower Theater right here in Oklahoma City. We have just finished watching Batman Mask of the Phantasm on the big screen as God intended, and are now joined live right here by many Bat fans at Tower Theater, at the Tower Theater. You got you, the, the people are too kind. Uh, thank you guys so much thank for sticking around. Thank you so much for sticking around. We really do appreciate it. Um, I know that there's at least one first time viewer of the movie in the in the audience. No, that, there's that more than stayed, one. We, no, we, I mean that stuck around. I think here. We, I think yeah. we knew because of the gasp at the big reveal. <laughs> it was pretty My great. God. What? What do you mean, Andrea is the phantasm? Oh, man, oh, spoiler alert, I guess if you're listening to this, you kind of know <laughs> yes, already, though, right? Yes, spoiler alert for the 25-year-old movie that was spawned by the 26-year-old cartoon. Uh, yes, uh, uh, correct, correct. Uh, well, uh, Joshua, <laughs> let's, let's just jump into the episode. So, Bobby, welcome to the show. So here's something uh, Joshua is very passionate about, and I become more passionate about mm-hmm. because Joshua is passionate about, which is... Before we even touch the episode, we look at the title cards. So you're familiar with the show and you know how they always introduce with a, a specific image in the title of the episode followed by the credits. Well, Joshua, here you go. The greatest title card to end all title cards. An epic, epic cinematic opening. 3D rendered, which by the way in 1993 was no small feat. That was really complicated With a crazy, actually. ridiculous uh, uh, choir singing with the orchestra. Holy smokes. Okay, so... B plus. B plus? Yeah. I, okay, so on its own merits, fantastic title card. But it doesn't have anything to do with the movie. It's Gotham. Yeah. Batman but watches once, over Gotham. But for once, we have a deep look at Batman and his history and his earliest days that frankly has nothing to do with his city. Okay. You raise a good point. I mean, that. That, that's but all. Yeah, I mean, that's it, is, all. it is cool. It is Keter's identity, but yeah, we see him do a little bit of street level crime fighting, but the, there's really not, outside of the Gotham politics that are involved here, which uh, is something we've talked about on the show quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, like, there's not really a lot of, it doesn't really pay a lot of attention to the goings ons of the city, like a lot of the episodes of the TV show. Right. Uh, Bobby, do you have any opinions about that opening? I think it's beautiful. 
please don't hear please don't hear more than i'm saying it's it's beautiful B b plus is a fine rating but i love how it goes from the sort of 3d urban environment and then takes you right into the casinos so you know that like darkness is sort of the subtext of what's going on and how we start dark and stormy night yes yeah it is a dark and stormy night uh, with the casino. And it's a nice change from the animated series intro. Yeah, we don't have it at all. We don't. Right? Um, there is an, uh, there's an assumption that you're going to show up for Mask of the Phantasm yeah. knowing what you're dealing with. Um, right. And, which is, uh, I mean, we surprisingly, we haven't really done, we could do an entire episode just on the intro, honestly. And it's now that I think about it, it's kind of weird that we didn't. Because that intro really tells you everything you need to know about Batman from the ground up. Like, if you happen to show up for an episode of Batman the Animated Series knowing nothing about Batman, you would know basically everything you needed to know when the show started. So is everyone in the audience uh, familiar with Batman the Animated Series? How every Before the title card, you have the iconic opening where you see Batman uh, on the rooftop and the guy's robbing the bank and he goes and busts. Yeah, yeah. We don't have that in this movie. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, It's kind of like a prologue that we, we... So you know what? That's a fair point. We don't have that. But I do think this... A, a theatrical experience. Oh no, we um, should skip it. Right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> right. It's it's assuming we're part of the built-in audience. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Uh, so, Joshua, here's the question I want to get around to. Uh, we have a lot to talk about with Mask of the Phantasm. This movie is terrific. There's a lot of really uh, beautiful uh, and and kind of gut-wrenching themes here. We've got some really fantastic character work. We have Mark Hamill's Joker, Kevin Conroy's Batman. But the question I want us to answer, or at least discuss, before the night's over, because I just love controversial things is asking the question is this the best big screen Batman movie I think there's a really good argument to be made I agree but we're not going to make it yet (laughs) we'll get there yeah we'll We'll get get there there. and we'll get some of our uh, all of our special guests especially Bobby but also we'll hear some from the audience on that as well, I Absolutely. Think. Yeah. So let's, you want to go ahead and kick off the conversation. I'd love to start with you, Bobby. So this is a, a point Joshua raised to me when we were just talking about this movie, is we actually had a, a whole discussion about, uh, is this an origin movie? And I want to get your opinion. Do you think this is an origin story? I do not. High five! There I we don't. go, we're on the same page! <laughs> I, I don't. I think it takes liberties with the, the sort of semi-canonical origin story of Batman. Uh, I think they take a lot of liberties with it, particularly uh, in a way to introduce he and Andrea in the cemetery. Um, it seems that his parents are driving him more toward becoming Batman with the vow and those sorts of things. And you don't really see that in other aspects of the mythology. It's fresh. It's for 25 fresh. years ago. Right. Well, it's No, fun. it's still incredibly fresh, I'd say, um, because there's, there's two things that almost always get cut from any theatrical version of Batman, and they are two things that should never be cut, and yet they get cut all the time. And one of them is the vow. The vow is incredibly important. Um, the vow, the childhood vow where he swears that he will avenge his parents' spirits against crime. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a big deal. Like, it's a thesis statement that really sets the tone for Batman. He's not looking for one criminal. It's not criminals. It's like capital C crime. He declares war on an idea. And we know how hard 
that can be fighting ideas, right? Like it's not you can't just you can't just beat it. Like it's 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 never it's an ongoing thing. It's, it's on, like yeah, it, yeah. it's like uh you know the the, the head of the with the Cerberus right like or you, you cut one head off. And, oh, the Hydra. Yeah, Hydra. Two thank two you. More. Yeah, two more appear. Like there's no and, and Batman's a great example of that because uh the way that escalation's a theme where well there's no there's no Jokers or Mr. Freezes or Catwoman's before mm-hmm. Batman shows up and because he shows up we get more of those type of theatrical people who are harming the city. Now, they, they don't really deal with that a whole lot in this film, but I think it's a great point. Uh, you said, so what's the second thing that gets cut, typically? Robin. Well, in an origin story, though? No, no, no. I mean for any theatrical Batman. Oh, it's true. They, these two things are always cut, and they just shouldn't be. Like, they are fundamental to Batman as a concept. What do you mean, man? Joseph Gordon-Levin, Dark Knight Rises, man. Come Drop on. Drop that right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, oh so. no! <laughs> Hold uh, on, a deep breath. Okay, Joshua, it's okay. You're, Serenity you convince now. about how much you really <laughs> hate, don't hate Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Later, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, but He's incendiary. He's just throwing me under the bus because we have a live studio audience. I know it's always so much fun. Um, but no, actually, I'm on the same page. I think we're on the same page about this because here's the thing: the vow is something that that does get cut from most Batman movies. And this film de- deals with the vow, but it doesn't really deal with the process of the origin story, right? right. Like, we, we don't see the way... Thank God! Thank God you Almighty see, in Heaven. You don't see the pearls yes. land on the... Yeah. On the, no the slow-mo alley. pearl drops. This is, this is a really big distinction that I made uh, at, when I was talking to Caleb about getting ready for, for this conversation, is that we don't deal with murdered Waynes. Here. We deal with dead Waynes. Like, we deal with the looming specter of lost parents. A haunted Bruce Wayne. Yeah, but we do not deal with murdered Waynes. We don't have the broken pearls. We don't have the boy in the chalk outlines in a the one unbroken street lamp in Gotham, right? Well, right, and we don't have him We don't have him going to some country and training with ninjas or something like that. Like, there's no... Right, we he, save that for the animated series. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tune in season three, folks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but that's not in this movie. That's like, this, this film, what I, what I think is really cool about this film is it's not necessarily an origin story, but it's just telling a story that happens to take place in the very formative years yeah. of Batman's life. Uh, I think it was based on a year two uh, Batman Year Two story, loosely. very loosely. Right. I mean, extremely loosely. For one thing, because Mask of the Phantasm is good, and <laughs> Year Two is execrable. It's really not very. Yeah, it's I know really that. Uh, it's drawn by uh, a really early Todd McFarlane, um, which is interesting because boy, does Batman have a lot of cape, like Spawn levels of cape, right? But otherwise, it's pretty awful. It's not great. Um, but so, so I think, but it's often mistaken. It, it's often described as an origin story. Yeah. Yeah. But really it's not like, it's really, yeah. Yes. I mean, there are pivotal moments in his journey to becoming Batman here. Like we, we do see him, there's little pieces of it, right? We see him don the cow for the first time and, right. and, and, and Alfred's like terrified, right? My God. <laughs> Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. It's the ladies best and moment. Gentlemen. It's, a, it's the best Alfred moment of that movie. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe tied with. I bloody well ought to. I diapered your bottom. <laughs> I, we, we've talked a lot on the podcast about the, the myriad father and son relationships that yeah. exist. And we, we do see some of Batman and Robin um, in the early seasons, but the, the, mostly we see Alfred and Bruce. And I, I even alluded to on the podcast a couple of times that they, that is the moment where... 
where I most feel the father and son, right? Like they're very comfortable together the rest of the time, but when there's a crisis point, right? And they're, they both know who the other one is to, to each other. They're yelling, they're angry. They're driving away very fast and yelling, you're wrong, like he's 13, slam his bedroom door. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, he, does a, he, he burns out with his Batmobile. He's like, yeah. you think you know me? You don't know me. <laughs> um, anyway, it's just, it's a crisis point between them. But we're also, I never feel like we're in danger of them, like, never speaking to one another again. It's very much reminding each other who they are to one another in that moment. Um, so yeah, I, that's why I would say. Other than terrified of Batman, which nailed it. Yeah, uh, that's, I raised, that's my. Other I raised this. Yeah, <laughs> what have I, I raised done? This question mark. Well, no, I think that's actually a great point because something I notice, uh, and again, what's really great about this film is every time I've, I've watched this movie, uh, probably a dozen times at this point, and. Uh, even this time I caught it a little differently was the way that Alfred is a great father figure because he does support Bruce Wayne as Batman. But notice the second Andrea shows up, he's like, okay, yeah, so what do you think about that alter ego? You're going to dump it, right? Like he's, he is ready for him to not do this. Okay, I'm going to push back against that because I think that upon rewatch after rewatch, you see that young Alfred is very trepidatious about he's supportive he, the the guy has spent years of his life at this point like preparing for this crusade whatever it's going to be and but alfred is trepidatious older alfred is more questioning he i think he's legitimately curious what does this mean for batman like you're down you're down this road to stop being batman is unthinkable but you used to as a younger man feel like being Batman and with Andrea was unthinkable. What does this mean? I, I mean, I think he would support giving up being Batman. I just think it's funny that that's the first question he asks. The second oh. he drives off in a car, he's like, so uh, about that alter ego? I don't know. Yeah. You're going to leave that behind, you know. Which, by the way... Uh, oh, no, he's pushing. He's pushing because that looming specter of his parents. I think they'd want you to be happy, right? And that's, that's a question, actually, that... Uh, we will talk about um, what does what does it mean for Bruce Wayne to be happy? Yeah, actually, Joshua, that's a great segue right into talk about. I mean, the, the, the core of this movie, of course, is the romance between uh, Bruce and Andrea, and uh, or as I like to put it, the woman who almost killed Batman before he existed. Yeah. That's okay. Uh, that the segue there for me is kind of a little bit of narrative theory where I where I kind of cement my argument that this isn't an origin story, right? Oh, sure, sure. No, no, no. I mean, they, they dovetail together because this is not a story about how Bruce Wayne became Batman. And it's not a story about how Bruce Wayne almost didn't become Batman. It's a story about what happened to Bruce Wayne when the love of his life came back to town, hmm. right? And we needed all this backstory, in order for us to feel the weight of the, of the main narrative. But the main narrative is in the air quotes present, right? It's in the present day. It's what's going on when Andrea comes back to town. Now, it's a Batman story. So that means there's gonna be somebody in weird costume who's killing gangsters because when Batman has a lover spat, that's what it looks like, right? But all those flashbacks aren't there for fan service. They're not there so that we can answer the god-awful minutia of superhero stories. They're there to support the actual narrative of the story, which is what happens when the girl 
who almost undid Batman, comes back into Batman's life. It's a great story, and it's a, it's a great example of how to use your rogues gallery uh, effectively. And again, for those of you who, don't, who aren't familiar, uh, Phantasm is a completely original character, heavily inspired by a number of character from the co- characters from the comics, but I think it's a great use of the rogues gallery, which is, you know, the rogues galleries, the villains are always there to highlight a specific facet yes. of your hero, and uh, often a flaw, and uh, so basically the story is using that foil, how do they overcome it, or how do they deal with it, so we can yeah. learn even more about that character. And, and I think it's uh, I think it's telling, and I'd like to hear what you guys think about this. But what becomes a theme for both Andrea and Bruce? I mean, it starts out as Bruce, but by the time we reach that present day story, it's both of them. It's the the specter of their parents, right? Like both of their parents are driving them to do the things that they are doing, but the things that they are doing, while kind of having these like surface level similarities are very different, mm-hmm. right? Um, but that's where we wind up. What, does, what is the legacy that our parents leave us, you know? Um, and what is the legacy that maybe tragedy leaves us when it takes our parents away from, away from us? So, Bobby, I'm yep. curious, on that, on that same vein, I think uh, a common theme that is you know, familiar to Batman fans is the whole justice versus revenge theme, yeah. uh, which we see in other Batman films as well, but I think it's dealt with really effectively here. Um, Bobby, like, I'd love to get your take on this. Like, what do you think about how the film wrestles with that idea? Uh, do you think it's really saying anything meaningful? Um, I don't know. I'm just curious. <laughs> um, it's been my third viewing in the past five days. I got... <laughs> I, I introduced my six-year-old to it, and he said, we need to watch this again. Yes. It's like, I'm doing something right. Raising them right. Starting it's with probably the about series. the only thing. Uh, no, while I was watching it again tonight, uh, that Justice Revenge thing hit me in a different way, and I was thinking how fun it would be to teach a college class, uh, like in philosophy or something, that's like Justice, Revenge, and Batman. Yeah. Uh, because it seems to be, you know, it's like the 20th century justice revenge thing uh, throughout. Um, I, I think they did a better job. I think they did a stark contrasting, uh, presented a stark contrast with how she deals with enemies versus how Batman deals. You have the, the few times the underused Commissioner Gordon is in there. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's criminal. It, it is one of the tiny complaints because, about this movie is how little we get from Gordon. Because I love their relationship, yeah. especially in the animated universe. Uh, it's so good, and we, we don't get that. Um, but Gordon is saying, Batman doesn't kill. It's his one rule, he doesn't kill, which is something you know your favorite Nolan picks up on um, in his movies. And yet she is so easily, maybe influenced by her dad's friends and, and the way that she grew up maybe they're talking you know nature nurture environment what you think what are the limits um she clearly is after revenge but when he wants to avenge he doesn't want to go down that road but he still wants to he still sees what he does as justice even though it's a, even though it is like is it really justice i don't know it's vigil, vigilanteism um for the sake of batman it is justice I That's guess. the question, though. Like, what is uh, me and Joshua have talked about this uh, on a cat in the cat in the claw? We actually yeah. spent. It was a weird. And it depends uh, on what you think about justice. Right. Like, is like, justice balance? Is it restorative? Is it how? What does it mean? Mm-hmm. What does it actually mean to right wrong or perceived wrong? Well, it's it's funny because uh, oftentimes Bat- Batman gets described as he follows the law. But let's be real, guys. Batman absolutely does not follow the law. He is uh, he is a vigilante. But the thing about him, his philosophy, uh, I think, uh, to your point 
usually is more restorative. Uh, that's something yeah. we see over and over again in the animated series, at least, in this particular version of Batman, is he's a guy who always gives, especially people who've been dealt a bad hand, he always gives them another chance uh, to d- do right. And even with the villains, he goes out of his way to not kill them. I mean, there's the, the Christopher Nolan thing at the end of Batman Begins where Ra's little he's like, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you either. Well, this Batman would have saved him. Would have saved him, yeah, yeah. We have seen this a lot in the animated series. Uh, it's very on the label with uh, the Mr. Freeze origin with Heart of Ice. Um, here, I think, this actually circles back around to why I think the vow is so important. First of all, it's a child's vow, right? So he approaches it believing that it's a thing he can actually do, even though it is huge and, you know, really insurmountable. A, a five-year-old comes and says, I'm going to stop, I'm going to beat poverty or world hunger, right? But, like, let's think of the implications of that. How does someone age, right? Like, this is his version of that. Yeah, Like, yeah. I'm going to stop crime. As a five-year-old, I'm going to defeat crime in Gotham City. Like, that's, that's, that's crazy. It, it is, yes. Like, for any adult to say that, you... You're not buying it. You know that they're making qualifications, but a child is not necessarily. The, the other side of that is he's very clear in the vow. Like, this is in some of the earliest Batman stories. So, like, 1939, 1940, yeah. this was already there that this vow was that I will avenge the spirits of my parents again by spending my life and fortune warring against crime, right? It's, Andrea Beaumont shows up. She does not have a war on crime. She has a war on people who happen to be criminals. Yeah. That's good. I think that's a really important yeah. distinction. Like, she is there to murder these people. And it just never occurs to Bruce Wayne that murdering people is going to fix anything because murdering people is what ruined his life. You know? It, it comes up a lot yeah. in BTAS, but I, I feel like the Mr. Freeze episode probably does a an actual better job of sort of making the philosophical argument. Sure. Uh, but Mask of the Phantasm has all the heart, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think um, one thing that you touched on there that I, I'd really like to take a look at is the idea uh, that he almost, I think we can see this fruit outside of the Batman persona because when he's at the grave in the rain, he says, I'll just donate more money to the police. They can, like, I want to make the city better. I really do. But like, I didn't expect to be happy so surely there's got to be another way other than for me warring on people in the streets i can just pay people to do that or as a as a rich philanthropist i can i can help that way yeah you know back when he was trying to figure out a way to resolve the idea of batman and being in love with andrea beaumont for the rest of his life right yeah and um this is a this is a thing i i think it's really fundamental to batman he he fights crime in the daylight too like he fights crime as bruce wayne right um in the beginning, as a younger man, it feels like it's either or. But although we don't deal with it in Mask of the Phantasm, this is very much an outgrowth of the first season of the animated series yeah. where they deal with it multiple times that he is physically volunteering at soup kitchens. He is giving money and then feels guilty that he can't fix everybody's problems with money. And this is a man who's dedicating his entire day life and night life to saving the people of Gotham, and in his heart of hearts, he feels like he's not doing enough, you know? And all that, I feel like it informs this movie because this movie very much grows out of that continuity. Yeah, no, I think I'd, I'd agree with that sentiment too, and I think that's one thing that, at least in, you know, on the big screen or in mass media outside of comic books, that's, that, that's something that really sets this version of Batman apart. I think there's 
uh, always a lot of emphasis on the character of Batman as, uh, and even the show, Batman is the real guy, Bruce Wayne's the character. However, uh, it's a little more complex than that, and I think the show does a great job at showing both facets of that, and how he does both. I mean, I think you see in most big screens that Bruce Wayne's just a purely an act. We never see mm-hmm. him really do anything good. We see him show up in like the Nolan movies with the, the supermodels, or we see him going to parties like a rich guy. Well, and, and we and we see that to delightful effect in Mask of the Phantasm, right? Right. You get both. Like that. I, I hate. I hate Playboy Bruce Wayne. Like as much as that <laughs> made sense in 1940. <laughs> We, I'm way over it. Um, but if we have to do that, if we gotta, you have to have some wine it, in the face. They did it pretty good, pretty good in Mask <laughs> of the Phantasm. Uh, I, I love that. Yeah, Bobby, that's a great illusion there. The, the line, man, it seems like you always pick women you know aren't gonna last. You know? <laughs> right. Come on. Right. After one of them just misspelled engagement, like, yeah, I feel like he's not gonna the feel I fulfilled word? with her. I don't know. <laughs> it's weird. Um, but no, I think. You know, looking at the romance of Andrea and Bruce, like that's so critical to the the core of this film. Uh, it's something I know I want to pose to you guys. Uh, do you guys buy that Andrea picks up that Bruce is Batman pretty quickly? Do you think she knows when she goes to Gotham? Is this something she finds out after she's in Gotham? Surely she has to know about Batman, right? I think she suspects it, at least. Um... I think she does suspect it. And I think, too, there's the Fortune magazine. She's not going back just to see the I mean, she is going back to see the councilman, but not for the reason that they, they talk about on the phone. And she's not going back to see Bruce Wayne. She's going back for something bigger. Hmm. She's going back for something bigger, I think. I think she knows. She knows that Batman. And then, and then of course, they telegraph it later. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Joshua? I... I do not get the feeling that she knows before she returns to Gotham City. And I'll tell you, in the, my first couple of viewings of this, I mean, lo, these 25 years ago, um, I didn't <laughs> love that she figured it out so quickly. But since I've really started to like pull the thread, she figures out that he's Batman because of a series of... Well, one coincidence at the end of a series of things that only Andrea Beaumont could know, right? Like, it's bad luck right there in the graveyard that brings them face-to-face unexpectedly, but that's where they met. Yeah. You know, she saw him practicing jujitsu and jumping over motorcycles before he was wise enough to hide the fact that he could do things. Right? Um, She knows because she almost married him. She knows his like secret heart, like his desire to do the right thing and to help people. Like it's a series of things that only the people closest to Bruce Wayne could possibly know. And then one coincidence. And so, like I say, when I first saw the movie first couple times, I was like, I don't really like that coincidence, but they build to it. Yeah. So well that now I'm just, yeah, I'm a hundred percent behind yeah, it. Yeah, no, totally. I, I love that. That's a really, it was a really smart plotting, honestly. Like, cause you see Andrea as the phantasm killing off, uh, Bronski. Yeah. And then, and then the next thing we see is Batman's investigating and you see him at the grave and then she's presumably still there without the alter ego. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she sees, I mean, it's in the same spot. So of course that's like, a, you know what I mean? Like she knows those little tidbits about him combined with the fact that, Oh, why is Batman front this grave of all great? Oh, yeah, Bruce Wayne. Yeah, yeah I don't, I don't know. If she, I don't think she actually knew when she went back, but it's one of those things she picked up on. And man, 
she uh like that was uh I, I love the way they wrote her character to once she kind of figured that out she played it kind of she, you know she kind of closed herself off which again is a very bruce thing to do too by the way it's like, true <laughs> like like hey uh you know something or i'm close to you i'm just gonna like push you away as hard as possible that, that and that line uh to highlight just how, much, how well she knows him uh, the, the line that she leaves him when he comes to her apartment and she's like the only person in this room he's being controlled by their parents is you that that stings it, it really does show what you're talking about, the, the calculated effort to push him away. Because in that moment, we don't know yet, but she obviously knows that she is lying. <laughs> they are both very much in the control of their dead parents. And she, but he doesn't know that about her, but she does know that about him. And she chooses in that moment to use it to close a door on him because she's still got work to do as the phantasm and cannot have the world's greatest detective getting that close. Right? Um, it's, yeah. I mean, I love the character of Andrea Beaumont, um, but I think we can be honest, that relationship picked up 10 years later wasn't going to work out. Right. She's not the person she was. And it's not just the murdering. It's the, it's the willingness. <laughs> ah! Well, okay, it is just the murder, but... That's a part of, I mean, a small part, you know, you cross the lines. But I would... But yes, I mean, Batman can't handle it, right? Batman cannot make a life with someone who had, who had unrepentantly taken lives. Okay. Um, but it's the smaller things, too, right? Like, even if she had come back and he had somehow stopped her before, she's cold. Mm -hmm. She's hard in a way that Bruce Wayne isn't. He has sons. He has a family. He's not dead inside in the way that Andrea has become, that she would use that kind of a fact against the man she ostensibly loves. Can you imagine him saying the same thing to her? Right. Now, here's something I'll posit to you, though. In some ways, she's not the same person, but in some ways, she is. And this is why I think this movie brilliantly articulates these, these themes of uh, lost youth, I think, is a really, or, or looking back on, on what could have been. could have been. could have been, you know, because we see that she still has the locket with their picture inside that she yeah. holds on. And it's really great. I didn't even notice this the last time I watched it, but when she's talking to the councilman over that dinner mm -hmm. and he's floating, she's totally fondling with it. She's like, oh, I was reminiscing, you know, like it's a great <laughs> visual cue. It's not spelled out, but it's a great way. Um, but uh, I think one thing the film does really well uh, is the, the visual motifs. We see in the flashbacks, it's very bright color palette. For, for those of you who don't know and uh, have, maybe not have listened to early episodes of the podcast, the entire uh, original first three seasons of the show were all done on black paper, which is super uncommon for animation. So it was a lot harder to get those bright colors to pop. So anytime Batman animated series is even like a lighter shade, you notice it pops more. And, so it's very, like whenever you see this show in particular in the daytime, it's usually very intentional. And this movie is no exception because you have a lot of oranges and blues and purples in the flashbacks. Everything's brighter. They go on their first date. They go to the world of tomorrow and it's this bright, beautiful future. And then of course at the end of the film we come back and everything is dark decay. They're both in, in costumes. Didn't and really work out. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Bobby, what do you think about that? Like the, like the idea of the, the could have been stories. Do you think Batman ever could have been happy? I think he's happy as Batman because that's who he is. Yeah, man. Oh. Yeah, man. Joshua said that before on the podcast. Yeah. We're that, about to say that, it on the podcast. That. No, he, he is Batman. Bruce Wayne is fiction. Batman is the real person. And, and that's who he is supposed to be. And I, th I think he's happy being an agent of justice. Do you think, is, you think happy is the right word for it or is it more fulfilling? would you say, or, or is happiness equal fulfillment? I mean, it's a kind of a philosophical notion there, but what do you, what do you think? 
It's a quandary. Because it, it's, his, it's his, I mean, it's his duty because he's trying to fulfill his vow. But at the same time, like he's in, completely in his element. Like he's, when he's Bruce Wayne, he's fumbling, he's awkward. When he's Batman, he's precise. He doesn't make mistakes very, well, at least very often. He, he fulfills his role as Batman. When he's Bruce Wayne, every, you know, Alfred manages him, essentially. But when he's, Bruce, when he's Batman, he is in his role doing what he is supposed to do. And I think in that, that that's where he finds his fulfillment, if happiness is fulfillment, more so than being with Andrea, I would think. Ooh, I do think that. Yeah, no, I would, yeah, I would agree with that. I think Andrea really does make him happy. And, and happiness is not a crime. Like, we're not anti-happy. But I don't know that a life of married bliss with Andrea would lead to the fulfillment. This is the argument that I've made on the podcast, that, uh, that Batman may not always be happy. He may have moments of happiness. Like, we are happy when we win. Yeah. You know, we are happy when we bring another ally into the fold. Uh, there is some genuine, in an upcoming episode, we'll talk about the genuine joy that all three parties have when Dick Grayson joins the household. Mm-hmm. Alfred, Bruce, and Dick all have just genuine joy in that moment. Um, so, I mean, there are moments of happiness, but I think fulfillment, right? That's the thing that he gets as, as Batman. And he might have been happy more often with Andrea, but I don't think he would have been fulfilled. You see it. That's the, that's the argument. The argument with his, with his deceased parents who are not talking back. Right? And he's like, I can just give more money. I can just hire more police. And it's like, you can do that. There's also this other thing. You know, and uh, I, again, I think this is something we're going to talk about on an upcoming discussion about the episode Perchance the Dream. Yeah. Um, and Robin's Reckoning, actually. And, yeah. Uh, in, in two different ways. <laughs> Posing the question uh, with Batman... He maybe I I do think he could have been happy with Andrea, but it's one of those things about life, right? You've been like in love with someone, you think it's gonna work, and that's it. And then for whatever tragic reason or some or tragedy ensues in your life, you break up, your parents die, like whatever the case may be, a tragedy ensues, and it impacts you or damages you in a certain way that changes like what your needs are. So so like 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 Bruce Wayne. Had he never, his parents never been murdered, he never becomes Batman, and he could have lived a happy, fulfilling life that was a lot different. Um, so to say, like, that's, I don't know. It's, what it's, if they it, made an episode about that? Oh, they man. made a couple. They made a couple, <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. We'll talk about it more. I just think it's a really interesting yeah. question, like, because I, I agree with you guys. He is very fulfilled as Batman, and I think this is the, the idea of looking about about the what ifs. It's like, well, he's happy where he's at now, but he also was happy with her in that it's moment. True. Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, just great. No, this is this is a good. This is a this is a point Caleb has brought up. Is that that these these crisis points, um, whether they're tragedy or just a big choice, um, they change you. Right, you are a different person on the other side of it than you were on this side of it. And obviously, the big one that is just beat like a drum for Batman is the loss of his parents. Yeah. But there are several more crisis points after that. Right. And for the purposes of Mask of the Phantasm, losing Andrea is a second great loss. Right. Like, he, he had decided he could, not, he could fulfill his vow differently in a less personal, a less directly oppositional way. But when she leaves him, I mean, he doesn't say this, but honestly, he takes it as a sign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. I got okay. it. I guess I'm I was, I was ready to put it aside, yeah. but now there's no reason to. 
full right. speed ahead. Well, and it goes back to the question about the, again, you can get ruined the psychology of Batman too, but the, like, the idea that the thing that would have made him happy had it been in his life at that moment can't make, like her, her coming back in, there's no way, I don't think there was any He's way. He's different. She's, She's different. different. Everything's Their different. Yeah, different. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's any way that works out. Um, no, and, no, and I think when you go, I, I, and I think that when you go to the empty uh, Gotham's World Fair, that's one way you know that they could not work out at that time. It's gone. The future is gone. The future is gone. And filled with Joker's voice <laughs> by Mark Hamill. I was going to say, you may have noticed it's fallen to decrepitude. Yeah. You might say, yeah. Well, I think that uh, actually is going to bring... Well, you know, actually, Joshua, I, I want to get to the Joker here in a second. Uh, but let's actually talk about the Phantasm. Because, again, I think the matter... Well, not Andrea. Separate from Andrea, the, the choice of this iconic villain who is original... Uh, to be in this film. He is the Tiltier villain, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, I, there's actually, it's funny, he was actually, uh, represents all those things we just talked about. He's like the ghost of Christmas future, which J- Joker even makes the reference to yeah. Yeah. Or the ghost of Christmas past, you know, like it's his big uh, terrifying ghost and I love the way they animate with the smoke around him. It looks like most of the time that, that he, she, it's floating around, you know. Uh, it, it, I don't know. I really stuff. appreciate they never bother to explain how the Phantasm does any of the things that the Phantasm does. I like it when superhero stories do that in general. <laughs> Yeah, just breeze past it. We yeah. don't. We don't need. I mean, look. You don't need we, to know. We spend all it's of our fun. time with Batman, so we need to know a little something about smoke pellets and uh, grapple guns, right? Um, and rocket cars. Oh, the rocket cars. Um, but we don't, for the purposes of this movie, we just need the Phantasm to do the things that it does. We don't. What? Please, thank you for not taking all day to explain anything. That, okay, so you mentioned Batman Year Two. That's very loosely based on extremely that. like more like um, inspired by. There's a big skull-faced villain in that who used to be the vigilante in Gotham before Batman. This is a terrible idea, by the way. Like, just don't do it. Batman Year Two. Just don't do it. But in that one is just called. He's just called the Reaper. Yes, a similar idea. Similar idea. Represents but, death. But I, I don't think that the change in the name can be discounted, right? Like, Reapers just show up and they kill people. That's what, now, the Phantasm is there to murder, right? But we're talking about ghosts from the past come back to haunt you, you know? Um, it's not a reaping. It's a haunting. What do you think, Bobby? You like you a fan of the Phantasm? I am. So this is actually... The giving, only- you, <laughs> giving you in-depth commentary... I'm giving you in-depth commentary on that. Yeah, all the commentary I would have on the design is like in contrast to the Reaper who is way... I mean, it's early McFarlane. He's way over-designed. He's just got a lot of red body, like leather suit spikes and... But this, it's like black void, gray hood, skull face. Apparently has a voice changer. And the sickle. Yeah. Oh, that sickle, that claw is terrifying. Yeah, Yeah, that's so good. He's in the graveyard. I don't know. Visually, just really, really powerful character. Uh, so let's talk about the other villain in this film, though, which is the Joker, voiced by Mark Hamill. So it finds out that they almost didn't use the Joker because they didn't. Want, they wanted to further separate themselves from the 1989 Tim Burton Batman, and I think that would have been a horrible idea. Uh, yeah. And I think this is a retrospect thing. I mean, we when the show was on, the Joker, had, Mark Hamill's Joker, had been around, and people liked him. I'm sure, mm-hmm. uh, but like. Well, I mean, again, the success of the first season is the reason we got this movie. Right. This was supposed to be Warner Brothers dipping their toe in the brand new direct-to-video market. Yep. 
Like that was a new concept more or less at the time. And that was what this was supposed to be until some Warner's exec got a look at it and was like, why aren't we releasing this theatrically? And it kind of, you know, spun up as quickly as they could to do that. How often does a studio executive look at an animated program and say, wouldn't this look cool on the big screen and then put it up there? Like, yeah. that never happened. Like, this was, they were, like, this was how, I think, a, a huge statement to how, just high, how quality the, the, the storytelling was yeah, in the first yeah. season the show was. Um, but, yeah, so they, they were trying to distance themselves from 1989 Batman, which is kind of weird because the theme song is very ins- heavily inspired by uh, the theme song from 1989 Batman. It's, it is really interesting to look at the influences they decide to keep from yeah. Batman 89 and the ones that they try and distance themselves from. I don't really think that they had thought about making their Joker super different. I think that that was just a concern because of a theatrical release. Right. You know, we had had Batman 89 and Batman Returns the year before this. Right. Yeah. Returns was, yeah, 1992. This was 93. Yeah. This is right so, after. Still very much Tim Burton's vision. Uh, Nicholson's Joker made a big impression. I, I really think they never thought about it until it was going to go to the big screen, and then they were like, ah, oh, hell. <laughs> and, and you know, you know too that I think uh, using the Joker's a good I, I, it was was great because the thing is Mark Hamill's Joker has aged tremendously like just exceptionally well like yeah, he's, yeah. he's the iconic Joker right yeah. um, so I feel like him not I can't imagine a version of this movie that he's not in and his and his performance only elevates the material overall like substantially um, just because it adds a little more per, it adds a little more of uh, personal stakes between Batman and the and the Joker mm-hmm. again not an origin story for the Joker either but it is kind of teasing who this guy was before whatever happened to him happened to him the, the series never goes goes I, guns ablaze into his origin I'll say that's the part of this movie that falls utterly flat and I think we could live without the smile. The the that, that Joker is involved personally in this stuff. We don't need to know anything about the Joker. We don't need to know that on top of all of these other times that Batman and Joker have faced off, that he yeah. that Batman also has a personal stake. We don't need any of that. And in fact, I am of the school that says the more we know about him, the less his impact. That's what I'm trying to say. Like he should just be this horrible mystery that shows up, messes stuff up tells a couple of bad jokes, maybe one good one, and then gets the hell out. <laughs> Bobby, what do you think about the use of the Joker in this film? I think it's perfect. Um, I, obviously, Mark Hamill is the best Joker. Um, and yeah. yeah, there it is. Non-controversial yeah. opinion. It's, it's not even <laughs> close. With friends. We're with friends here. <laughs> we all think Mark Hamill's the best Joker. Good. Mark Hamill was my Joker growing up. Come yeah. on now. Does anyone really hear Jack Nicholson or Heath Ledger's voice in the comics when they're reading comics? Does that? I, I mean, because I, I still only hear Mark Hamill's. Anyone? I only hear Mark Hamill. I know. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's clever how they brought him in. I don't mind. I mean, it is not the the it is not the sharpest storytelling by inserting him back into that narrative of being a henchman, but with how the Joker has multiple origin stories throughout the entire mythology, I'm, I'm thinking like, eh, we can see him there, but, we, but they still left out like, how was he create, you know, how did the Joker become the Joker? So having him there early on is a more annoying hmm. because I don't think, I think it would be better without him. Um, but it did make for a great interplay toward the They have to have some sort of way to connect Phantasm to the Joker in order to have the grand finale for the end. So I think that was the, 
maybe the easy way to do that. I don't know. I, I think we're, I think we would split the hair similarly. We love all the stuff with the Joker and question all the stuff that might be the Joker. Yeah. 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 I, I, and, I, I, and I, Joshua, I actually, I think uh, it's like small, it's like small nuances here in the opinion because I, I agree with you. I am of also of the mind that the less we know about the Joker, the better. Like, I think he just is way more interesting that way, um, which is one thing Chris Nolan's Dark Knight does, does very mm-hmm. well. Absolutely zero explanation. He just shows up. We get multiple origin stories. Same with the killing joke. We get this whole elaborate origin story, and it's like, Except for our one time, I remember it this way, and other times I remember another. I don't really know which one's the real thing. Uh, I, I don't mind this, though, because, again, in the same way, this is not a Batman origin story. This is not a Joker origin. Yeah. All, all we're seeing is that he was somehow connected with the same mobsters who took out uh, Andrea's dad. And I don't think we learned, we learned literally nothing else about him other than that. Other than that, oh, hey, he was somehow connected to the mob, surprising no one, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I just don't love him as a petty crook, like on any level. Um, I, I think that there is an angle you can take where if you really, like we talked about how this is one of the few Batman stories that deals with his early years that isn't tied to Gotham. I think if there was, um, if we really wanted to delve into a space where we watched Gotham sort of evolve from nice, normal, organized crime and corruption into performance art crime <laughs> that the Joker could as starting out as a hood and winding up the Joker could be a really interesting vehicle to get there since that's not what this is about. I don't know. I just don't love it. I don't love it. It doesn't break the movie, but I don't love it. You don't love it. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. I, uh, again, um, I, I do, I think it's one of those you kind of, you kind of weigh out. I, 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 I'm glad they worked his character into the film. And if by doing that, we have to see that he existed pre-Joker mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and a connection with Andrea's you know, family ties. I think that, 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 that outweighs the, ah, but I know something about him now. Here's a place where I will, I will own my own hypocrisy, is that normally I am the one who is arguing that the neater the narrative package, the better the whole thing is. True. And in this case, they tied so neat a bow on it that I'm like, yeah, but I don't like this Joker stuff. But it is, it is, the mo- it is literally the most elegant story choice but it's less than elegant as a Joker choice. Yeah, and I think, uh, again, again, just a testament to how well this show worked. Because, again, originally this was going to be a straight-to-home video release, and mm-hmm. the new, because that was a new concept, but it was originally going to be, like, a slightly extended episode. And it, and it, yeah, it, they had to pad it, this out. Right, they had to add, they added more runtime. And I know it's only 75 minutes long, which for a theatrical release seems short for us today, but, like, the episodes only run 22 minutes each. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're getting a very full story, and it feels... It, does, it feels just like that, like a huge episode yeah. of the show because it's, it's very has a very clear beginning, middle, and end. It does tie together very neatly in the end. There's a moral of the story. We learn more about Batman, but also like nothing in this story. Like but again, we talked about this in later that DCU you get into how everything's kind of a little more connected. But like the sh- like an episode of the show, it really doesn't impact the next episode or the no, next it's true. season. Uh, in fact, we don't even see, we hardly hear, and I don't want to chase this rabbit, but we hardly even hear a peep of the Phantasm ever again in this universe. That's true. What's more, it seems pretty clear to me that Andrea takes the Joker someplace to murder him viciously. Guys, guess what? He shows up in some more episodes. So either, <laughs> with either, no explanation. So either she failed and is still a crazy killer uh, full of vengeance, or she had a change of heart off screen. One of those two things happened, right? He's the Joker. He somehow got out of it. <laughs> it's true. He's the Joker. 
It's true. They actually, it's funny, rewatching the animated series, there's, like, they kill him off, like, almost the, every, at the end of almost every Joker story, they, he, like, dies, air quotes. Oh, yeah. There is a huge lampshade hung on it as Gordon and, and Batman stand side by side looking out over the water. Do you think we've seen the last of them? And Batman turns to Gordon and says, what are you, new? <laughs> That's not what he says, but he should have. I mean, honestly. <laughs> he basically says that, He basically that, says that. Um, so the question that I want to throw out there is, is this the best Batman film, uh, theatrical Batman film? So uh, there have been a couple of other, and maybe we could split the hairs, maybe if we want to talk about the directed dvd films, there are a lot of really good ones, but there's a lot of them. So I didn't want to steer clear of that, unless you guys have any in particular that you want to give a shout out to. Um, but that would be, so theatrically, uh, we have 1989 Batman, 1967 Batman, sorry, 1967 Batman based on 66 Batman. We have uh, Tim Burton's 1989 Batman with Jack Nicholson. We have uh, 1992's Batman, Batman Returns, which features the Penguin and uh, Catwoman. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have the two Joel Schumacher films, (laughs) Uh, Batman Forever, which features, this is the introduction of Bat Nipples and Bat Butts. Um, uh, We also got lots of puntastic jokes. Uh, that one starred Val Kilmer as Batman, and then we have Batman and Robin being George Clooney's mm. Batman. Uh, we have the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy starring Christian Bale. Uh, we actually have the Killing Joke, which was a was screened at a, a special event, the first animated Batman since Mask of the Phantasm screened theatrically. Uh, and then of course we have Batman versus Superman. Which Bobby, what do you? What? Well, I, not, no pressure. Special guest. <laughs> Well, the one I've seen the most, this is going to be an answer that's a non-answer. The one I've seen the most, I've seen the 67 Batman at least 100 times. Chalk that up to boredom in the early 90s. And, uh, and it being great. It is fantastic. fantastic. Guys, that's where the shark repellent comes from. That's where he uses the bat, shark repellent the on shark, the mechanical the shark, shark that he punches. Shark re- in a, get me the shark repellent bat spray. Some days you don't know how to get rid of a bomb. How do you use... I'm never going to get over this. I know it's 66 Batman, but they make a whole deal about the shark repellent, and then you find out it's a mechanical shark, but it still works. It's um, a very complex artificial intelligence that's meant to believe it's a shark. And then everyone having the languages scrambled at the end, which, like, saves the world. It's fantastic. But that is not my favorite one. In terms of, like, large screen viewing experience, the one that moved me the most was the killing joke. Was, uh, was that, was a, that was a dream come true. I mean, that was one, the one everyone was asking yeah. for for like 20 years. Like, and even Mark Hamill and Kevin Conroy were like, we want to do an adaptation of this film. Yeah, I mean, that's the one that moved me the most. Although I will say I did see, uh, which one was it? It was The Dark Knight in a drive-in theater in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania in the summer when it came out, like opening night. That's a weird choice. But there were bats all over because we're in rural Pennsylvania. And there are bats. And I was like, holy crap, we're watching Batman and there are bats. <laughs> they heard. They heard that they're supposed to be portentous and ominous. Like, you see him on the screen and there are bats flying in front. But it's, As the, the Warner Brothers logo pops up, bats fly across the yeah, screen. Oh, man. That was cool. But, I mean, honestly, it was the killing joke. Um, I don't know if that's the best story but it's the one that's moved me the most i told you this would be a non-answer um because i have read the killing joke so many times since i was a little kid um and 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 they were true to what that graphic i mean as best as they could um true to that graphic novel and it fulfilled all my childhood dreams 
I mean, that's fair, though. That's, for I mean, that I graphic novel. For the graphic novel? For the graphic novel. Like, yeah. Um, well, I know that's one that people have been asking for for years. And I'm on that boat, too, because it's one of those, like, whenever you get the Batman comics, you know, when you're getting into comics, you're like, hey, I want to read Batman comics. You get year one, Long Halloween, yeah. And then the killing joke, and Josh was probably shaking his head. But those are the ones you get. We really need to update that list. It's fair. That's a fair. A lot. That's fair. But that, those are the ones that you get online, or you have friends who read Batman, or they write back in the '80s. That's the one they're yes. like, you know. And yes, maybe it should be updated. But you know, I'm saying like for a lot of folks, though, that's the one, which, which is why I think the killing joke was such yeah. a big deal when it finally came out, and they gave it a theatrical release. Yeah. Joshua, best Batman movie, theatrical Batman movie. Oh, it's Mask of the Phantasm. It's not, it's not even a contest for me. Like, it doesn't even, it doesn't even come close. Um, it's the uh, tightest narrative package. It's the most uh, sort of accurate representation of, like, an amalgamated concept of Batman. I mean, it's been 80 years, right? Like, he's been a lot of different stuff. But if we needed to go to one and, and build more stuff off of, this is, this is the Batman I'd want to see build more stuff off of. And, hey, good news, I got a few more seasons of Batman the Animated Series out of it. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes him, it makes him simultaneously more human and also more committed to his mission. Um, it just, yeah, it's just, we don't get a lot of good love stories for Batman. And so, yeah, so for me, it's Mask of the Phantasm all the way down. Uh, it's a little closer for me. I, I will say I, I am, yeah, I'd lean and say I, I think... Not having watched other ones semi-recently, like within a year or so. It's been a minute since I go on the bat train. With I'll go through a phase next month and watch like all 20 <laughs> of them. Uh, and I do love the DVD, straight-to-DVD uh, movies. Which, by the way, fun fact, Mask of the Phantasm actually was a huge box, considered a box office failure when it got released because it was like basically no marketing push. Yeah. Uh, but because of DVD, Blu-ray sales and, st- and little f- things like this, the movie has been a huge runaway success, which is why we get these three or four, five, now five times a year, yeah. these straight-to-DVD uh, DC Films. Well, there, there were two more direct-to-DVD uh, Batman movies based on the animated series, um, Sub-Zero and Secret of the Batwoman, Batwoman something like yeah. that. Um, and, and then one that kind of bridges the gap between Batman the Animated Series and Batman Beyond. So in addition to a box office flop gave us three more pretty well-put-together uh, there's a point of diminishing returns, but um, but then it picks back we, up. I, I disagree. The, I, I think. Well, uh, uh, mm, how recently have you watched that one with the Batwoman? Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna. Argue that. I did watch Sub Zero last Sub-Zero's year. Sub Zero is pretty good. It's pretty good. It's definitely not as good as this. Uh, and. The one you're talking about, the bridges, the Batman, the animated series, and Batman Beyond. Yeah, is uh, Re- Return Re- of the Joker. Return of the Joker. Yeah. I okay, so that movie's got some problems, partially because it came out right after Columbine, and it was marketed towards teenagers, and they like, oh, we're like, oh crap, we can't. It's a really dark movie too. It's so dark. It's super dark. So they're like, oh crap, we can't show this to kids and teenagers. So they had to go back and edit it. If you find the unrated cut of that film, I think it's really exceptional. I know me and you might have some. There's more conversations to be had about that for sure. They're mostly but, Batman Beyond conversations, sure, but yeah. Sure, but I, but I like that one quite a bit. Um, but yes, I think this is the best one. I, I do think, you know, Nolan got some a lot of stuff right. I think, and this is, and I don't, wanna, I don't necessarily want to crack open this can of worms. I like just pushing your buttons about, about it. But I, I think the thing that he did well was that he wasn't trying, and, and this is something I think we, we can actually agree off, he was not trying to make a Batman movie in the traditional sense. He was trying to say, like you would say, this 
concept of a man dressing up as a bat and going around fighting crime is absurd because in the real world, guess what? It's absurd. People don't do that. It's nuts. And so what he did was tried to do a, apply a different take where he said, okay, but let's say someone did. What are the real-life implications of that? And obviously within the context of that film, they acknowledged that, yeah, this is totally absurd. And, he, and there's a timeline for how long he can do that because in the real world, that's just how that would work. Um, I appreciate that he did a proper Batman origin story, although the problem is now origin stories since then. Because, again, let's go back. That was before origin stories had been done to death. Uh, in 2005. Now now they have actually been done to death and I'm sick of seeing origin stories for any superhero. Uh, But I think that one does it really, really well. It does it really well out of the gate. Is it the best Batman movie? No. But I appreciate the take on that. Coupled with The Dark Knight, Rises is, you know, got more mixed feelings about that. But I think those two films especially, uh, and Dark Knight especially, do a great job at telling an all together different type of story. Uh, and honestly, uh, the type of story as a, as a film critic, I would like in the, in the oversaturated world of MCU Marvel films and everyone trying to make a Marvel film, I liked that no one was trying to take the material a little more seriously and trying to say, hey, I think that superheroes are absurd. And he's entitled to that opinion. I might not agree. But under that, in that context, he said, but what if I took this idea of this character and applied it to an actual genre film? And he made some really damn good movies uh, with with that concept and that notion. Um, that's kind of the st- type of story I'm more interested in seeing in an oversaturated universe where the superheroes everywhere. But yes, Phantasm's still the best. But I will say, you watch Batman Begins after you watch Phantasm. I, I, I think my left arm hurts. <laughs> Caleb said that Mask of the Phantasm was better than Batman Begins. But you watch Batman Begins right after, because I think it does fill in. It is an origin story that I think is really good. And it's got Liam Neeson. Come on. Come on. Um, Wasted. No. They, they put, nope, not doing it. Oh, God. Okay, we're not going to fall that trap. We're not going to fall that trap. Um, so uh, as per normal on our show, we have alternate media recommendations, Joshua. But I thought before we did that, it might be a great time to open it up to the audience to see if they wanted to ask any Batman-related questions or argue with us about our Batman yeah. opinions. at us. Uh, oh, oh, oh. And look at that. Harold Story Her- from Tunes Tunes podcast has got us covered. Yeah, I have a question. Wait, who are you? This is Brett with Robot House. Hi, Brett What's from up? Robot House. You know who Thanks I for coming out, Brett. A person I have never met before tonight. That's not true. I've known him like 20 years. Hi, Brett. What's your question? Uh, my question is, I'm not sure if this is a result of this being a theatrical release and them having a little bit more leeway with the ratings, but I noticed a physicality and a violence from everyone in the movie, but especially the Joker that I hadn't really seen before in the animated series. You know, he's like towering over Sal and he's like slamming art into a desk and he's even pretty good in some fights so I wanted to know if you guys saw that too and if you did do you think that changes his character at all or makes him more menacing in a different way let me start with this because there are some things that I know just just because I kind of nerd out about this obviously but um there are some places where beat has told censors where they could put it um, they have a lot of guns, like a lot of actual, like Tommy guns, which I grant you weren't things we were all carrying around, but regardless, real guns, right? Like actual guns that shoot bullets as opposed to laser guns, like on GI Joe. Yeah, yeah, well, no, and that's a good point. Uh, like even it's competitors from even Spider-Man, yeah. uh, Spider-Man, the animated series at the time and the X-Men animated show, like don't, they did not no, use no guns. guns. Yeah. Um, but blood was not okay. 
Yeah, there was um, a lot more blood in this. And there is a lot more blood, which there's not really that much blood, but there is some. There's a lot. So I don't know if it changes anybody's character for me, but it definitely like lends a weight to that fight. Because really, the, the place that, that I at least noticed the most blood was uh, Batman versus the police, where yeah. he is damn near caught. And uh, the final fight between Batman and the Joker, which is way off kilter with the addition of the phantasm so that they are both just having to wreck one another to get anything done. Right. It's a great line Um, where Joker's like, you better stop. You're going to kill both of us. And he's like, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. So I I don't know that it shifts any character for me, but it definitely changes the tone of the violence. Like gives it more weight. Especially when the Joker is literally beating the crap out of Andrea. Like, oh, they yeah. would have never done that on the animated... They never did anything like that on the animated series. And the way that he punches her and slams her down and is... I mean, it, it, shows you, uh, it shows you how evil he is and what he's willing to do. And, and, it, and I think, too, like with Batman, the, the, you mentioned the police scene where he's bleeding at the most amount of bat blood. You get a, a bigger sense of his humanity in that moment. Um, he's failing. He's bleeding. He's been cut. Kind of makes him more of a mortal, right? It does. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's funny um, because... Batman has been memed so much in the 25 years, 26 years since the show come out. And the joke is, and, and Joshua, have, have, we do this on the show all the time, whenever occasionally he has that moment where we go, and guys, this is a classic, and because he's Batman moment. Hey, how yeah. do you do that? He, you know, he does like absurd things. But I think, Bobby, yeah, you're, you're dead on. Like one thing that not having those, those same restraints that they would have on television allows them to do is show the mortality of your characters, specifically of Batman. Um, show the horror, the, the real horrors of the Joker, and the, the show alludes to it a lot, specifically with his relationship with Harley Quinn. Um, yeah, it, it gets rough, but I think being able to see it on the big screen, though, you actually get to see the strikes, you get to yeah. see the brutality, and and it makes definitely paints the Joker as a far more villainous, vile person mm. visually. I think. Um, but no, I think, yeah, I think I'm glad you raised that point. It's, it is something I noticed because you know, not I, whenever you're adapting uh, a, a, a television show that's on Saturday morning or even Friday after school is like there's just so many rules, uh, yeah. and, I, and I'm sure they've changed a lot since 1992 uh, when the show originally aired. But um, you know, you, you'll notice that with a lot of other films that get that theatrical release or straight to DVD release. I mean, heck, I mean, Batman: The Killing Joke. They're a lot. They pushed as far as to go with the, the, the R, which is yeah. crazy. More questions from the audience? Do you feel as though your question has been answered? <laughs> Hi, uh, my name's Chris. I got uh, two questions. First one's real quick. Have any of you guys seen the 1940s serial of the Batman? Yes. Yes, you have seen it? Uh, yeah, that was just that Not question. Not recently, Not recently, but I've but... done my research. Right. I was just curious. <laughs> uh, the second question I was watching it, and I don't think I ever gave this movie a fair shake because I treated it like an afternoon cartoon, so I probably watched it in the afternoon with the sun shining, but watching it up there with the speakers and everything, I was like, man, this is, this is pretty awesome. And the way the DC Extended Universe is in disarray right now, because you guys mentioned uh, Batman vs. Superman, but Justice League, you know, thou shalt not speak of it. I was like watching this, and I was like, you know, Marvel's got Marvel. Deadpool has Fox has Deadpool and X-Men right now and I was like what can DCEU to do to ma- like matter I was like man a live action like 
Psycho 1998 level shot for shot remake of this, would you guys be for that or would you hate that? Like a cheapy movie, like not blowing out the budget, but if they could do it and if they get Mark Hamill to do the live action Joker. <laughs> okay. I have a lot of complicated feelings about that. I do, also. Um, I don't... Th- okay, so so much of what makes the animated series work for me is how ultra-stylized it is. So if you had... Go with me on this. Let me finish the thought. If you had somebody approach a Mask of the Phantasm live-action remake in a similar way that they did to like uh, adapting Sin City or, or 300, you know, where they said, we're going to make this look like the comic book looked or like the show looked, I might be interested. But I mean, so much of the way this thing works for me is the way that it looks. And I think that's a massive challenge in a live action piece. So I, I don't know. I think probably I want this and it's good and... Maybe the DCEU should just, you know, I don't know. First, step one, turn a damn light on. Step, step, step one, just start over and pretend it didn't happen. Except yeah, for Wonder yeah. Woman, let her do her thing now. That's cool. Live action version. Live what action, do you guys think? What do you think? Leave it alone. Yeah. Let it stand on its own. So I was never into the computer-generated movies like 300 anyway, so no love lost. Yeah, it's just the, the let's... There's such a stylized look to yeah. the source material. Let's try and emulate that is an interesting experiment. Because, yeah, it would need to look the same in order to be as effective. Well, and when they do things like that, when, when you see that in other films, and I think uh, Batman versus Superman does it a little bit, when they try to emulate, you see in the cartoon, like one example with the visuals, right? Um, and I'm not saying nice things about Batman versus Superman, but like whenever they tried to, when he gets the bat suit to fight Superman, he's got the white eyes, like you see... In this film, well, visually, that it, it looked goofy, right? Like I thought, I thought it looked goofy uh, personally. I was like, why? Well, I mean, I know they've given a weird reason for it to matter in this universe, but like, I don't know, it just doesn't feel as human. And that's when the CG just kind of takes over, and then I kind of lose investment in the action. Um, I I think I'm more Bobby. The older I get, and the more media I consume, I, you know, whenever I was younger, I was like, yeah, wouldn't it be cool if uh, they'd adapted our last week Akira? That was a conversation for a long time. The older I get, I'm like, nope. Leave that alone. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's very of its time, of its place. Um, uh, they're like uh, the Uncharted, like Hollywood's doing this all the time, the Uncharted video game series. They're like, we got to adapt this thing and they keep bringing new people. I'm like, listen, guys, what were, you know, when you're into it at first, you're like, yeah, this would be great on the big screen. But then when you realize that the thing works as well as it does because it exists in that media, mm-hmm. it's, it's playing to the strengths of that media is why it works so well. You're like, you know what? I don't think a big screen live action adaptation would actually do a service to the story they're telling because it's already been done so perfectly. So why would we want to, why would we want to adapt it and risk not doing it well, I guess. Here, rather than a shot for shot sort of remake of Mask of the Phantasm, I think that the thing that you could get that would sort of make the DCEU matter is if you got people involved who actually liked and understood the characters. And that is not snark. Like, that sounds... And that that, includes Superman. You have to understand and like Superman for the whole universe to work. That sounds like I'm just being glib. But, I mean, that is an an honest take. Like, whatever else we can say about uh, Butch Lukic, uh, Bruce Timm, Paul Dini, just the... All the people that were involved on this show um, are, first and foremost, amazing storytellers. And secondly... 
they understood that they were borrowing these characters. And that doesn't mean you can't do anything interesting with them. Like, we talk on the podcast a lot, like, how did this show happen? Because it's weird as hell. Dude, there's no, this show would never in a million years, if this pit got pitched across any executive's desk in Nobody 2018, no one would even, even consider it. I, because it stars an adult. It's, it's, it's Batman. This there's is, no it, kids. There's no kids. It's and, dark. Um, there's guns. It's controversial. They do these crazy noir close-ups of people sweating and freaking out. And I'm like, no kid who's ever seen this, except for me. <laughs> has seen the source material that they're borrowing for them. The Art Deco. I, I actually had Art Deco choice. No, kids aren't going to get that stuff. So, so yeah, I think that's that's the trick, right? Like, uh, uh, get people who are good storytellers and who care about these. They don't have to love them. They don't have to like hold them in reverence because that can go too far the other direction. Also, look at I don't know the last fifteen years of superhero comics. But that's, that's the deal, right? Like, care about the core of these characters and do that. Because I think that's how we got BTAS. That's how we got the best parts of the Superman animated series. That's, that's why it turned into Justice League twice. You know, um, it's why we got Batman Beyond, which, again, is another one of those that's like, we're going to pitch the story. And sure, now when I say, what if... Batman were also Spider-Man and Iron Man, and in the future, you're like, yeah, that'll sell. But in 1995? Come on. I think what you hit on right there is exactly how you build these interconnected universes. Uh, This is exactly what Marvel did with the MCU. They had people who cared about the characters. Yeah. They, 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 were, they, were, they were passionate about getting the characterizations right and making people understand why it worked. And, you know, not, they didn't tell perfect stories, but they told compelling stories that mm-hmm, were interesting, mm-hmm. engaging, and made people want to come back for more. And because they had a successful Iron Man and Iron Man 2, they're like, well, we'll bring in these other characters. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, what if we cross over? Well, that's exactly what DC did with this universe yeah. in 1992. They had Batman animated series. They had no plans of doing a Justice League or Batman Beyond or Superman. It was like whoa, people really like this show and it's got good ratings and it's critically acclaimed. So yeah, let's do a Superman show. And then it, that's when the seeds start planting great storytelling. And then the next thing you know, you've got five years of mythology to draw from. Like, what if we bring this stuff together and see what happens when we bring these characters together and how that's going to work? It's, it's very organic storytelling, but it all starts from, like you said, a place of caring deeply about these characters, not about how much money you're going to make, not about what looks cool. Um, which, again, going back to you know, the DC Universe, I think that's been something that was, was sorely lacking in this last batch, starting with Man of Steel, um, largely, I think. Did that answer your question? So much, right? Like a thousand percent more, yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ethan. I have a piece of trivia and a question. I looked this up during the movie. The Phantasm is voiced by the same actor who voices uh, Andrea's dad. Yes. Because I wonder, because it sounded the same. But yeah, it's the same guy. I thought that was sort of uh, conscious casting choices, maybe? My question is, so this movie is not by any stretch like an adaption of year one, but there's quite a bit of year one in it. There's bits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And every time I have watched this since I was a little kid, every time I've watched this since I read year one, the lack of a bat flying through a window has always struck me as really interesting mm. because we do all of the lead up and just don't do it. So I wondered if y'all would want to discuss that. Uh, as a Batmanologist. He does have that on his business card, I swear. <laughs> you should. Yeah. Um, yes, I have degrees in both Batmanology and Batmanography. Um, 
No, so it is kind of an interesting omission if you know that it is a thing to be omitted. I don't think the movie's lacking for it. I think that the... In fact, this, this would actually be, speaking to the previous point of knowing sort of when to let the reverence go, is that as much as I love the scene of a bat crashing through the window, and as much as I love the line in theory, yes, father, I shall become a bat. Like, it's on the nose as hell, but we're talking about Batman, come on. As much as I love that, for the purposes of this movie, their engagement, his proposal being interrupted by the bats, and we can backfill that that is, oh, well, that's, that's a new part of my tragedy. I will now turn it outward on others. Like, that's not explicit, but that's, I think that's an easy backfill. And it is so much more on theme for this movie than the window crash. So it is, it is you know, sort of like an interesting omission. But at the same time, you look at this very neat narrative package and you're like, well, of course they cut it. Where would it go? And besides, we have this better scene with Andrea. Are you guys both familiar with the, uh, it's very iconic in year one, but it's shown up in different ways in different places. The bat crashing through the window, landing on a bust of his oh, father. Yes. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or clinging to a portrait. It changes, you know, depending. The year one one is like <laughs> giant friggin' bat landing on his yeah, dad's head. It's very um, pronounced, yes. But that's not anywhere near this film. I don't, yeah, I, I think the night, well, that's again the difference between a comic book and uh, a film, right? Like, there's certain things that in comic books, like, they have to be that kind of in your face. Like, that's part of the power of the media is the iconography, the, the visual, the, the, not the frames, but, you know, the, the panels, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, in film, like, sometimes when you get, when they do things like that a little too hard, it really just, like, you feel like it's getting shoved down your throat a little bit, or you've, it's almost distracting. You're like, oh, now, like, not that the movie doesn't have very, like, as you put it, a very on-the-nose moments, but I feel like it's a lot, it's definitely not that in your face. But they're, they're on the nose for this story. Yes. Right? Like, right. The, these bats are breaking up Bruce and Andrea before Batman breaks up Bruce and Andre. I well, mean, you know. So, for example, in Batman Forever, we do get that bat scene where he's, well, it's not quite the same. It's when he's in the bat cave and he oh, talks yeah. about, and you get like that slow-mo version of the bat just flying and yeah. flying and Batman's talking. Uh, that, that, is, that is actually adapted directly from a uh, short origin story okay, that yeah. they do. Yeah, the, the part, the in fact, bits of that uh, Bruce falling into the cave as right. a child. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's all, it's kind of spread out through the movie, but it's, it's this one 12-page story. That's basically the closest we get to a Val scene in yeah. those first four Batman films. Uh, well, the, the Tim Burton or Schumacher films, right? Cause that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, that, that moment is, the, the, the monologue's powerful, but the, again, the visual, for me personally, and everyone's got, you know, get their own mm -hmm. uh, taste and preferences. But that was like, I was like, oh my God, that's way too on, your on the nose and too in your face about what they're trying to communicate visually. Um, so yeah, no, I think the, um, it is a great moment in the comics though, like iconic. And uh, I know there was also the straight to DVD adaptation of year one. Uh, oh yeah, that I made it into that did, too. Did a yeah. similar thing there. I mean, part of the year one piece too is that he is dying in that moment and is hallucinating. Like he's talking to his dad like his dad is talking back to him. And that, I feel like that level of dealing with dead parents would have been way inappropriate for B-Taz in general, but also for Mask of the Phantasm. Which is all about dead parents, right? And still, it's like, mm, it's a little much. I don't know. 
bit far. What do you think? We have two more questions, probably? Do we have two more questions? Do we have two more questions? We do. Okay. We have these two questions. It's on. So I want to go back to the vow. Who, who, um, wait, who wait, are you? Then, uh, I'm Caleb Haldane. And, and, and are you a part of a thing? Uh, yeah, it's a little thing. It's a podcast called Red Six of Golden Crown. Oh, cool. Thanks, Caleb. <laughs> Thank you. The internet's Caleb Haldane. <laughs> um, so Andrea Beaumont's vow happens when she's an adult and she's able to act on her vow immediately, whereas Bruce's vow takes place when he's a child and can't act on it until he matures. So I've got a two-part question. Um, is it the same vow? And can Batman only happen because he has the childlike wonder of defeating capital C crime? Uh, absolutely, I think that the only reason he does Batman is because he's got that childlike naivety that he can do it. That's, right? He doesn't have that by the time he's being Batman. No, but no, that is gone. the root. That right. is the root. Well, that's that yeah. moment when you're a kid when you decide, I'm going to go chase this crazy, ridiculous dream. And yes, while well, as you get old and you ch chase the dream, you, you know, you're whittled down by the real world yeah. a little bit. Yeah. But you still do it, right? Like, in, its own, in your own way. Like, you still, if you're, you know, a lot of, you can still chase those big dreams. And for Batman and Bruce Wayne, it is beating crime. And uh, yeah, that, that's a very, yeah, yeah, absolutely, Caleb. I think you're dead on. That is critical. And he can only become Batman because he has that moment when he's young, uh, which actually ties into, I know, the TV show. I haven't watched Gotham extensively, but I know it's something they touch on in that show. Let's not deal with that. What it does touch on. <laughs> um, oh, first, first I would say Andrea's vow is very different. Uh, I think she vows vengeance against specific people. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why it's very easy. Oh, how do I get revenge on specific people? I murder them, right? Um, now, uh, they do... They but did would Bruce's vow not have been against specific people if he wasn't so naive? No, because he doesn't know who killed his parents. Right. Uh, now, this shifts through continuities, but I, I have lived through three or four different versions of this story, and I think that the whole thing works better when it's random. Right? So it's not tied to any grander conspiracy. This could have happened to anybody, but it happened to you. What are you going to do about it? Right? And so it's a faceless terror as opposed to a specific person and to be dealt with. In the DC, in the DC animated universe, this specific version of Batman, we, I mean, we, they see, you see Joe, the character of Joe Chill one time in a flashback and actually a dream sequence in Justice League Unlimited. Like, that's the only time, and it's a, it's a cameo. Like, it's a small thing. Like, so they never deal with the specific person who killed Batman. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can look at it. And, and Joshua and I, this is a conversation we've had on the podcast, uh, and I, I tend to like that version as well. Like, where it, I, I... The question is, would he still be Batman if he beats Joe Chill? And I think the, well, if he finds Joe Chill and stops him, I think the answer is yes. Um, again, Christopher Nolan did an, another really interesting twist on that, which is, oh, he knows who the guy is, but someone else kills him first, so then what does he do? You know, like, there's a lot of... I, I think, ultimately, at the end of the day, though, yes, Batman is not swearing vengeance on an individual. Uh, he is swearing it on a, a, syst a systemic problem. Um, a couple of the better stories where they have done something with him re finding out who killed his parents, this is well after he's been Batman for a while, after there's been a Robin, after they have, he's already redefined what his war on crime is going to look like a couple of times, right? And so when, he's, when they do, oh yeah, so it's this guy, and it's a mystery, and they solve the mystery, and he does feel like his parents have justice now, but it doesn't really affect what he's doing on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm, I'm doing this. Um, one last uh, sort of coming at the bow side of things. Um, 
a story called Flashpoint uh, recently posited a different Batman that was Thomas Wayne, who saw his wife and child murdered, and he is a gun-toting murderous bastard. And it's because that's the most obvious direct route to solving your problems as an angry, vengeful adult, right? Um, Listen, there's nuance to be had there, but I mean, we're dealing in superhero comics, which are very big, icon. We have to make him very obviously different than Batman. Um, but, but I think that that's baked into the character. This is a thing that Bill Finger got right by accident. He didn't think about all this in 1940, but there's something about the way that bow is put together that, that really sets that trajectory that you've had other writers play with what if that vow were a little different let's look at thomas let's look at you know oh there was a lot of nodding they made a flashpoint movie didn't they yeah they did it's actually i really, forgot about it's that really freaking good too i was like how did all these people read flashpoint <laughs> bobby uh, what, what, do you, what do you think do you think uh like do you think if if batman had known who joe chill was do you think he would have sworn a personal vengeance uh, like do you have anything you'd like to add on that uh, question i think it's better that he didn't know um, because you see with, uh, if we're going back to Phantasm, you see with Andrea, she specifically knows who kills her father, who's responsible for them, and she specifically swears revenge on those people. And it helps you, it, it helps him not to know, therefore he is able, as has been mentioned, he's able to see crime as sort of capital C, system, an ideology, something bigger to defeat than just a person, and, and to see justice instead of revenge. Very good. Uh, last question. Caleb, uh, anything else you'd like to add? All right, last question, sir. Who are you? Uh, my name is David. I'm from the general population. Hey, <laughs> David from the general population. You you're, 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 yeah, I know you. You're a cool guy. There we go. Um, so, putting aside the fact that the Joker was. If, if he needed to be added into this interesting story of, of Bruce's life, um, do you feel, looking at the animated series as a whole, that this was strengthened uh, Batman and Joker's relationship, or that it was just kind of a cheap um, fan service, that it didn't really strengthen their dynamic throughout the rest of the series, or that it really did add a little bit more for only looking at it um, as a, as a whole? That's a great question. Um, you know, here's the thing, and this is, again, part of the episodic nature of the animated series. Like, there's a lot of Joker stories like this where it's like the Batman and Joker do it again. Our, our joke is, so what are Batman and J Joker doing every other Thursday? You know, like, like there's like a lot of very... Paint by num not paint by numbers is that the word formulaic or when they're good we describe them as workmanlike workman -like. right like they, they do yeah. the thing that they are supposed to do when they're bad we describe them as Christmas with the Joker right which is not a great episode it's pretty Ugh. bad although we do get a really funny we get the funny iconic joke Jingle Bell's Batman smells song yeah. out of it so <laughs> to that point kind of thinking along those lines I think this feels like another episode a really great Batman Joker episode and it's complicated by the fact that we have the Phantasm in there. Um, and it adds, again, like while it doesn't add any specific 
origins or anything to how the Joker first showed up. I do like that. Again, he's planted as a character that was around doing things that, uh, you know, unwittingly sabotaged Batman's life before he was Batman. Like that idea that the Joker is just chasing him everywhere he goes. Like from the, it's not like it's destiny. It's just how his, how he arrived in God. They both kind of came up in Gotham at the same time, like Joshua was talking about earlier. Um, so I, from that front, I do think it actually adds something to the narrative. Um, I don't think it's fan, I mean, I, I think it's, if it's fan service, it's very carefully considered fan service. And Mark Hamill, their performance is so good. You could say it's fan service, but I also think it actually adds something and a layer of complexity to this story. Because again, there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wild card thrown into this love story between Batman and the Phantasm. So I, I, think, it adds, I, I think it adds something special. What do you think, Bobby? It's going to sound strange. I always tend to view the direct to back in my day VHS movies. I know. <laughs> Separately from the animated series, um, and I know it's the same universe, but I just have always ten- I've never I've always seen those in isolation because they're after something different than what the animated series was doing. So. For me, it doesn't help or hurt the interplay that's happening in the animated series because it just kind of, in my brain, exists somewhere else. Like, this is an interesting Batman story that has the Phantasm, who we never hear about in the seasons of Batman the Animated Series. It does have the Joker. You kind of get Jim Gordon, Harvey Bullock, but everything else, and Alfred, but everything else is different. Pretty, pretty cordoned off. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. And so it's just, it exists in the universe, but in, in isolation to the animated series. That's just how I've always tended to view those. I like Caleb's point that it could add a thing, but since I have literally in 25 years never thought about that, I think it hasn't really mattered to me. <laughs> Like, they've, they've been complex enough, right? And, and as far as BTAS is concerned, they sort of spring fully formed, already hating one another and uh, declaring war on one another, you know, from God help us Christmas with the Joker. So, uh, yeah, I haven't really thought about it. Um, I think that there's a place where you could do it, where you could. Uh, I'm going to play with that headcanon now, but it, it hasn't really impacted my thoughts on the Hamill Conroy Joker and Batman up till now. I do think they get to they got better source material to work with. The scripts were a little sharper, you know, just because it was a theatrical release. Um, but no, one thing I will say: um, there's a lot of moments in this movie where you see how much they kind of how the relationship works. And again, like I mentioned earlier, the idea that the Joker <laughs> there's two moments. One, the Joker, whenever he thinks that he's finally made mm. Batman snap, he's just like with glee laughing. He's like, oh, maybe I've made him snap. Maybe I finally did it. Uh, that's a great moment. Like yeah. we're highlight. This is just what the Joker. Like, his whole goal is just to make Batman snap and like break his one rule, right? Um, and then the second one, which I mentioned earlier, which is when they're flying around the jetpack, and Joker's like, "You better let me go, or we're both gonna die." And Batman's like, "Whatever it takes." Uh, I think those are both two great moments. And I will say this: um, what, there are two great moments that could have existed in other episodes entirely sure. without the backstory, sure, and still sure. been just as impactful. Sure, agreed, agreed. The thing I will say, uh, and a lot of this, tie, if, you, if you follow this universe through to um, Batman, the return of the Joker, the, that crossover, um, there's a couple moments in that, as a fan of the entire universe, there's a couple moments in that where the Joker, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but basically he's like, I'm really tired of doing this thing. I'm tired of doing the Workman episodes, right? I'm tired of <laughs> doing every other Thursday. He's like, so finally I'm ready to do something different. And because you've had these ex- multiple experiences throughout the years with the episodes on the TV and with moments like you see in the movie, it adds like a certain 
like investment you have as a as a viewer to those characters. So when mm-hmm. he says that, you know exactly like the uh, all the things he's talking about and that emotional context I think is important. So again, it's like does it add anything specific? I mean, not really, but also at the same time, like these are the moments you think of when you're watching that movie and he's like having that talk and you're like, oh, okay, I, I got it. Well, I think uh, we've talked way longer than I expected, Josh. Yeah, hey, thanks for the great thanks. questions too. Yeah, thank you so much, everyone, for uh, asking questions. So the way we like to wrap up the show is we also we always like to throw alternate uh, media recommendations out there. So what is something you should read, watch, play, maybe video games, uh, books, comic books, uh, other films, TV shows you should watch? Uh, after watching Mask of the Phantasm. So I've got a couple I wanted to throw at you guys. Uh, first and foremost, this is going to sound like a really tr- expected film critic thing to say, but Citizen Kane! Uh, yeah, I know. It sounds lame, but uh, I, was, I, was, I was reading a lot into like, one of the, one of the script writing. They were inspired for all the flashbacks. Their specific oh, point sure. of uh, inspiration was Citizen Kane. They said, when we were thinking about how to do it, this is back before Lost existed and flashbacks had been done to death. Um, like, yeah, yeah, they yeah. Hadn't, hadn't been quite figured out. They said, we, we weren't sure how to do flashbacks and how to make this work, so we looked at Citizen Kane, which is, of course, for, for a lot of uh, people considered one of the greatest movies of all time. That sounds like a really, you know, snobbish, easy answer. But I think it's actually, it's about a very wealthy guy and there's flashbacks that work very similarly and they even use similar transitions. I know that actually makes a lot of sense because there there are two motifs i guess that happen in this movie that usually are hack jobs uh they are uh flashbacks are one of them they're 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 giving you exposition in a way that is not clever um i'm talking about across time and space not i'm not i have no i literally have no specific example in mind i don't know what he's nodding his head about i like flashbacks generally um the other one is uh, uh, like the end media res opening. Like usually that's we're about to do a bunch of boring crap. So here's some exciting stuff to hook you to do the boring crap. That's usually what an end media res is when they actually take the time to tie it into the story, into the narrative. It's, it is in the middle of the thing that's already going on, but it's also about the story we're about to tell you. Uh, Citizen Kane does not quite have an end media res ending but it, you made me think of that because they do masterfully use the flashbacks much like citizen kane and it made me think of the other thing that's usually a hack job that they did a well bobby do you have any recommendations you throw out there if you watch what's the thing you want to watch you watch this movie and the thing a book you want to read or comic book you want to read right now i'm thinking about tv series tv series the americans Ooh. oh that's a great show i haven't watched oh. i gave that up tonight for you oh my god Guys, American Designs last season, and I haven't watched it, but apparently it's one of the best things on television right now, so that, that means a lot. It's a little bit like um, people trying to live a married life with double lives, kind right. of. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of yeah, sense. I think it fits with the romance, right? Yeah, and there are, I think it's season two or three, they incorporate flashbacks. Since we're talking about flashbacks, they incorporate flashbacks so you can get a taste of what their uh, pre- KGB life was like before mm. they came to America. That's all I'll say. Okay, I have a really Excellent. weird one. Weird one? Go for it. I do. It's one that I would not have thought of before this week, but um, it is actually an episode of the largely failed series Angel. Whoa. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the spinoff of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. One episode. It's one specific episode. It's an episode called "I Will Remember You," and the reason it makes me think of that Mask of the Phantasm ties to that episode so specifically is that uh, throughout various 
stuff, Angel is given the opportunity to like be a human being with Buffy. Like that's that's the thing. But in the process, he has to give up his purpose, right? Like the thing that is the reason he gets up in the morning. I mean, and this comes back to that fulfillment versus happiness. Like he loves Buffy and they would be happy together. But if he has to give up his purpose, if you have to stop being the person that you are meant to be in order to be with that person, maybe don't. And it becomes a very difficult decision for him, much like it was for Bruce. So unexpected suggestion there, first season episode. Skip everything before that. Just watch that one and get out while you can. If I didn't know you, if I if I know any better, I'd say you didn't really like Angel that much, Joshua. I like parts of Angel. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's go ahead and start winding down and let these poor people go. We've been yeah. talking for so long about all the Batman. Thank you so much for everyone for coming out. Before we go, Bobby, thank you so much for taking time out even and skipping yeah. the Americans on its last mm. season. Well, where can people um, keep up with you online if they want to see more of your uh, very clever tweets or thoughts about occasional thoughts about Batman? It's Bobby underscore Griffith, G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H. Excellent. Uh, and guys, Bobby, as Oklahoma historian, he's always tweeting the best memes, specifically Star Wars-related memes usually, or... Other stuff. Cats. Cats. I love cats. Yeah, it's great. Please follow him. He's great. Uh, and uh, I, 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 he's one of my favorite people on social media. Uh, Joshua, where can people keep up with you online? Well, I got a lot of podcasts, and they're all about superheroes. And if you want to know more about them, you can find them at pulpdiction.biz. And if you want to hear me opine of the moment, Twitter is great for that. I'm at Joshua Unruh. Uh, and uh, again, I'm Caleb Masters, and uh, I am writing at uh, thecinematropolis.com, uh, producing a monthly podcast called The Cinematic Schematic over at The Cinematropolis. Uh, our May episode is going to deal with Deadpool 2 and also talk about uh, film scores from blockbuster films. Uh, so it's going to be a great episode, so you can check cool. it out. Um, and again, at cinematropolis.com, uh, it's uh, Thoughtful Conversations from Plant Thunder Productions. Well, we'll see you next time. Same bad time. Same bad channel. Yeah. Animated Discussion is a Pulp Diction Productions program and is 100% supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can keep this and our other shows in production, check out patreon.com slash pulpdictionproductions. And if you can't support us financially, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the best way to help others discover the show. Keep up with Pulp Diction news by following at Joshua Unruh on Twitter or find us at facebook.com slash pulpdictionproductions. And a special thanks to Vinnie Hogan for our original theme music.